Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Governor Gavin Newsom announced new water restrictions this week as a drier than hoped for rainy season wraps up. But first, what do you know about Paso Robles? If you're not from there, you're probably thinking about wine, maybe olives too. Not the fact the city is 40% Latino and that a recent effort to reinstate ethnic studies at Paso Robles High School met with resistance from critics like the school board president who argued the class could inflame racial resentments. We'll talk with LA Times reporter Tyrone Beeson about why so many people of color in California feel invisible in Paso Robles and other cities. That's coming up right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Paso Robles is a small city 30 miles inland from the coast in a region where heat-hungry wine grapes thrive. It's also a multiracial city. But Los Angeles Times reporter Tyrone Beeson found many residents of color feel invisible in Paso Robles. He explored their stories in the latest installment of his ongoing series, Our Country. Tyrone, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Forum, as you know, has been following this series since its inception. We've had you in before. But for the benefit of people just tuning into this now, explain the basics for us. What are you looking to do with our country? Well, I call it my country because I wanted to take ownership of the story about race and identity. Obviously, as an African-American, I go through a lot of the sort of inner turmoil that I explore with subjects and and the pieces that I I write and that I've written throughout my career. And I I wanted to be transparent about that, that, you know, journalism comes from, as far as I 
do it. it comes from the heart. It comes from a, a place uh, of inspiration that's that's very dear to me, and that is, you know, trying to belong in a country that for centuries has treated people of color as if they didn't belong. And so that is my approach: is to ask these questions of myself, and then to venture out to places around the country and here in California, where I can go deeper with other Americans who are exploring those questions. So, so why did you want to visit Paso Robles for this series? Well, I'd read that in Paso Robles, like a lot of places in the country, there's been this debate about critical race theory. So that was the sort of initial inspiration. Why would this central California wine town be discussing critical race theory? Um, The black population there is quite small, but the population of Latinos is is quite large, about 38, 40%. And so it was fascinating to me because many of these rural towns in California were formerly mostly white and somewhat conservative, but obviously because of demographic change in California, that's that's not the case. And I wanted to know to what extent the realities on the ground there influenced the school debate. So give us the details. When did you visit? How much time did you spend there? What did you see? You know, what is the town like to somebody visiting for the first time? Well, I've never been there. I've driven through Central California, but I'll have to say it's beautiful. It's paradise. Um, these beautiful rolling hills covered in, in vineyards. Um, there are oak trees and the, the sort of golden sunshine. It's classic California wine country. And this town is, it's an old pioneer town, like so many places in, in California. They have this history. Uh, there were once uh, mostly indigenous and obviously, um, you know, the, uh, the various turns of events in the uh, 1800s uh, transformed them into, the, into places where essentially white people, people of European descent, uh, were able to shape these the, the identity of these places. And so, it's a place that feels like it has that kind of a history, like an old sort of um, old California town. But what I found when I went there is that there are these new realities. The Latino population, as I said, is quite large, but you don't actually see them when you're in a, town, a beautiful town square. I mean, it's sort of this Norman Rockwell uh, setting, but without the diversity that you would expect, given um, what on paper looks to be quite a diverse city of 32, 34,000 people. So I wanted to understand that. And, you know, as a black man going into a town like this, I immediately understood what people would go on to tell me (laughs) over the course of a few days visit um, where I was able to get a snapshot of this, the sense of loneliness and cultural isolation, uh, while it is a very idyllic place and where there are job opportunities, certainly in agriculture and um, there's a uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, it's not far away, some people work there. There is this sense that you're living in a city made for someone else, uh, specifically for the white residents. And I have to say that no one of color told me that they hated the town. It's just that they wanted to feel as if they belonged to it more, that they were included, that they, that they could hear their story or their stories in the narrative of this place, in the narrative of California and by extension of the country. And that's a weird thing to, to tap into, right? Because it's not as if people were out necessarily with picket signs when I went there. Uh, Life was just sort of rolling by. But as I spoke to people of color, I began to understand that it wasn't just about the classroom and the the debate over a a, critical race theory or the ethnic studies course that the school board had approved. It was about how life was lived in the city itself. And so the, the story sort of mushroomed from that. 
it's interesting. You you start the story talking about the town square, and of course, right. The the other meaning of public square is you know where the community comes to talk mm-hmm. out in the open about who they are and what they're about. And um, I'm I'm wondering if you can explain, you know, s- set up for us the struggle over the reinstating of, of an ethnic studies course, one ethnic studies course at one of the mm-hmm. local high schools. Why did this effort meet with so much pushback? Well, it met with so much pushback because nothing local remains local in this country anymore. We're seeing it this week with all the legislation, or, um, um, all the sort of anti-LGBTQ legislation in uh, states and communities around the country. This is a local issue, right? It's just a group of citizens came together to make the city feel more equitable and inclusive. And as part of that, uh, one of the proposals was to, to, rel- to relaunch, to restart an ethnic studies program at Paso Robles High School. Sounds great, right? The problem is that while they were doing this in 2020, early 21, you know, we were still sort of in the Trump era of, of sort of this idea that liberals, as they would, as conservatives would say, are trying to convince America's children that America is hopelessly racist, that we are irredeemable, that, um, that our systems should be transformed into something unrecognizable. And so they met resistance at the local level, but what was really happening is that they kind of got swept up into the national conversation about critical race theory, um, about the idea that we should look at America, American history and social and economic inequities today through the lens of race. And that's highly problematic for a lot of Americans. And obviously it's a campaign issue in the midterms this year. But what I wanted to do was to understand why here, and what I came to realize, as you just alluded to, is that the town square is a place where people come together. But people of color told me that they don't feel as if they belong there, that that they live, they sort of go along to get along because they're afraid of offending their white coworkers and friends and neighbors by talking about their own experiences with microaggressions, with exclusion and uh, other forms of discrimination, and they feel sort of pent up in a way. And I think what was happening with this course is it was a moment when a lot of people of color in the town found their voice. And I don't think that they wanted necessarily to be uh, to be offensive, shall we say. They simply wanted to be heard. And it was really poignant for me. I've not felt that way many times in my own life. And uh, certainly in communities I've visited around the country, I've heard this. So that's what I kind of latched onto, the sense that it's a great place to live in, in a way. But you kind of have to deny yourself uh, hold back who you are in order to be there. You know, the last time you were on Forum, you said something that, that caught my, my ear. People like to be proud about where they live. And, you know, I, I think any of us, no matter what color, would ha- we'd have to be living under a rock not to know what horrors happened in, in decades and centuries past. Do you think, Tyrone, that some of the white resistance about teaching history is is happening because it, it this history makes it impossible to be proud about where we live in the present. Yes, <laughs> I think this is, um, I want to be delicate about this because I, I understand what it must be like just as a reporter when someone tells you something that you don't want to accept about America. But here's the thing, people of color are learning new details about those struggles, about those horrors all the time. 
I'm in my late 40s and I'm still learning things and I'm a journalist. If I have to do it, then they have to do it. And so I had very honest conversations with a couple of people there, in particular with the, uh, the school board president, um, who is a proud Republican. Um, he's known around the community and he doesn't even believe that systemic racism is a thing. He thinks it's a myth, uh, a sort of a leftist conspiracy. And he's, you know, he's open about that. I don't mind saying that or phrasing it that way. And we had a conversation in the town square, actually. And I tried to bond with him. I tried to understand his story, um, how he came up in life. Because for me, I need to get to the heart of, the, of, of this sort of political impasse where every time the word race is brought up or every time race is brought up in the context of American history, some people go to their trenches and others are out yelling and screaming in the streets listen to me hear my story and it was an it was really a fascinating and I have to say in my for me enriching conversation to sort of look into his eyes and try to understand where he was coming from and to actually have him reciprocate and I think that he he, he tried I don't think we agreed <laughs> uh, on the framing of my story but he 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 went with it and he he opened up to me but this resistance to to America's ugliness often um, comes at the, at the cost of having people of color sit there and hold tight and wait and hope that at some point America will pay attention to the way they have had to uh, come into themselves in the society. Did you talk to any white liberals uh, mm -hmm. in the community? No, I didn't because I wanted to, a lot of my stories have to deal with people of color. And so I do as I put in my sort of disclaimer for the series, My Country, you know, I'm writing about this from the perspective uh, of, a, of a black man in America. And so I do seek out people in these stories who I feel haven't had a chance to express who they are in the way that I'm sort of looking for it. So, you know, I didn't exactly venture into sort of the white liberal community there because I think that what I want to know is how people of color, regardless of politics, uh, exist in places like this in California and elsewhere. So that was my decision. But, uh, you know, another journalist might disagree with that. But I think what it did was it really allowed me to focus on stories that were kind of in, hidden, ignored and uh, erased. And that's where this piece really, I think, is at its best. We're talking with Tyrone Beeson, staff writer for the L.A. Times, about his news story titled, This California Wine Country Town is Multicultural. So why do so many feel invisible? It's part of his My Country series, exploring the things that bind us and making sense of the things that tear us apart. Does what Tyrone's talking about today resonate with you? Do you feel or have you felt invisible in the community you live in, particularly as a person of color or as an immigrant, as a child of immigrants? Call now and join the conversation. Our number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. Whatever you do, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking with Tyrone Beeson, staff writer for the L.A. Times, about his new story titled, This California Wine Country Town is Multicultural. So why do so many feel invisible? I want to remind you, even as we're already getting calls coming in, that we want you to join the conversation. The number again, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Noel uh, tweets, I remember when Paso Robles was a place where you stopped to get gas and eat. I'm amazed at how gentrified it has become to appeal to wine-sipping tourists, not to mention the craft beer fans. Tyrone, why why don't we uh, have you introduce us to some of the people you talked to in the article. I was particularly taken with 17-year-old Mel Ruth Gonzalez, born in the U.S. to parents who emigrated from Mexico. You you quote her saying, my family and myself have integrated into this culture. It would be nice for them to recognize our culture. Why wouldn't you want to? There's so many of us here. Mel is amazing. And I interviewed her on on campus. Um, uh, This was at the beginning of the school year, by the way. So there's there's been a lag, you know, obviously between uh, the time that I visited and when the story was published, but she's just a light. And I I really enjoyed talking to her because that's where you feel and sense this pride that people of color have in Paso Robles. As a Mexican-American, as a Latina, she is, you know, her parents obviously taught her to celebrate her heritage. That's not the point. The point is, to what extent does the community at large recognize and celebrate her heritage? Does she feel included in its celebration of itself? I mean, obviously, Paso Robles is kind of this pioneer town, so um, which necessarily means that it has a kind of European-leaning um, sort of orientation, and, 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 and that's okay. But there are other people who live there. And so she talked to me about that, you know, and I loved the way she put it, as you, as you read, there's so many of us here, why wouldn't you want to learn about us and help us celebrate with you? And, you know, as a student, you know, at Paso Robles High School, she's seen instances of racial conflict play out and it was disturbing to her. And, and that sense of isolation becomes worse when you are confronted with actual sort of conflicts between students. Um, and, uh, and so this is, it's, it's, it's interesting because I don't think that she herself wanted to um, criticize the town. In fact, she, she expressed a lot of regret that people couldn't agree on the need for the ethnic studies course that she helped to campaign for and that she actually enrolled in uh, this fall. Um, there's this sense of wanting to help celebrate the, the, the triumphs, not just the struggles of people of color there. And I thought that was really interesting about her. 
You know, as we've mentioned, uh, there is going to be an ethnic studies course at this high school. And you talked to the guy who's going to teach it, Jeffrey Land, and uh, he told you it, it's difficult to teach a class that's so much under the microscope. I'd, I, I sympathized with him immensely, right? Like he told you some people are asking for cameras in the classroom and detailed descriptions of assignments. I mean, yikes. Yes, uh, Mr. Land, Jeffrey Land is, um, <laughs> uh, he's really do doing a lot of heavy lifting. And I have to say, he he included the input of students and community members in developing this ethnic studies course for the high school. So he didn't do it himself and he, he's, he, he would never want to take uh, credit for it. But can you imagine, well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are of color and others can, that, that Details of American history would be so dangerous that people would want you to put cameras in a classroom. I mean, when he when he said that to me, I was just my, my, my jaw dropped because it, it really was this kind of sobering moment when I understood that, yeah, this was not about the class. This is about America. And some of us don't want to include these stories, the stories of of immigrants. Um, recent and in the past, the stories of the transatlantic slave trade, the stories of the settling of the West and the removal of Native Americans. These things are so dark and ugly that, that the teaching of them might make some Americans feel as if uh, schools have gone too far. And the idea of being monitored while uh, passing these lessons on to students was so um, so fascinating to me, but it makes perfect sense because I think in the country, it's really hard to talk about race and inclusion. I mean, look at where we are. You know, it makes me wonder if we're not just talking about discomfort with the past, but the present. I mean, you, as you mentioned, right, there's 38% Latino mm -hmm. in Paso Robles, but not on the city council. I mean, this is happening in the present right now, this structural racism. Yeah, and it's the city council, it's the police force, it's the school board, the schools themselves. And by the way, these are problems across the country in towns big and small. So it's not just Paso Robles, and I don't mean to pick on them, but this is an issue. The reason that I that I felt that the story was really legit and that I needed to, to push forward with it is because I saw elements of so much of America's uh, sort of racial conflict in the town. And, uh, and yeah, the sense of exclusion is only worse when the authority figures, those who make the rules, those who interpret history uh, and pass down lessons to children, don't look like you and don't understand where you come from. Many of those people are good people, but the structure is flawed. And I think I think that's the the root of critical race theory, which is you know obviously hotly debated around here. Others would disagree, but to me that's what it means. And and. We should explore that. I mean, as a journalist, I feel we should explore that. That it does not mean that everyone who, everyone who is right, white in Paso Robles, it's a bad person. It just means that that we're living in a system that um, excludes people and that um, perpetuates the inequity and the invisibility. And so it's interesting because uh, the teacher Jeffrey Land is very open about that. You know, in the class. It, not to criticize America, but to try to understand how these inequities and how discrimination, um, you know, persists in the modern time, in, in the modern age. And so he is super open with them. And, and it was great to sit in on the class for, uh, on a couple of mornings and, you know, watch the students sort of, sort of interact with him around the idea of America being a union 
that needs to be perfected <laughs> as opposed to a perfect union from the start. And we don't have to talk about these things. Let's go to the phones now and meet Naomi from Alamo. Hi, thank you guys for having this discussion. It is so relevant and top of mind for me. Um, my husband and I are born and raised in the Bay Area, so we're very familiar with you know, the various communities within the Bay Area, but we ended up settling in Alamo um, about five years ago, and we have two small children, two toddlers um, in school age, and representation is so critical. Um, from every single thing that we do, we are one of the only people of color in said given activity. Um, I'm African-American. My husband's Latin. Um, our kids are biracial. And, you know, we have to deal with comments from our children like, Mommy, why, why am I the only one with brown skin in my class? Or um, the preschool that I send my son to not even acknowledging celebrating Black History Month and having to schedule time with the directors to say, hey, why are we not talking about this? And, and here are some resources and do that extra legwork. I mean, it's just an additional layer of stress that you have to deal with when you are not represented in the community that you live in. And it's a constant struggle to balance. Do you move to a more um, representative community? a more diverse community, even though you physically love the way the area that you live in, or do you stay and try to build a mini community within the broader community, um, which is an additional layer of work and effort and stress that you kind of go through. Um, it's, it's amazing because I, I don't think people understand just the amount of microaggressions that you experience on a daily basis when you don't have that level of representation and interaction whether it's contractors coming to the house and assuming, oh, your husband must be an athlete and that's why you can afford to live here. Or, um, you know, asking, oh, well, do you, do you work? Are, are you gardening? Are you working for the family? Who's the owner of the home? Um, things like that, all the way down to just feeling as though your, your children aren't having an opportunity to have a diverse set of friends or um, educators or activities. And so feeling the need to alter your own schedule to either drive to Oakland or Berkeley to give them that or provide, you know, a sense of community in a different way. So representation really matters. Um, having that level of diversity within your community really matters. Um, and it's always interesting when you, ta you were talking about critical race theory and just how difficult it is to learn your history within the U.S., and I always wonder, you know, why is it so negative if we are educating kids in terms of racial dynamics and, and historical um, events and historical topics? It almost seems as if, you know, ignorance is bliss. And so there's this notion of the, the less they know, the less angry they will be, or the less they know, the less they will be inclined to um, try to change it or uprise or, you know, protest. Um, and so it, it really is important from a daily perspective and also just from an education standpoint that having that knowledge and that history is awesome and then having that represent, representation as well is just so critical. So thank you guys for having this discussion. Thank you for those comments, Naomi. I, Tyrone, I mean, really, this just points up the fact that, that Paso Robles isn't an outlier. It's emblematic of, of a, a similar set of circumstances playing out across California. 
Yeah, it is. And thank you, Naomi. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that it's been such a struggle, but I certainly identify with that struggle because I, I've lived it and I have heard it from so many people. Something that, that you, you said, Naomi, really struck me because um, there's uh, one of the people in the story, um, Juanetta Perkins, the person who kind of sort of spearheaded the campaign to start this ethnic studies course um, in the aftermath of the George Floyd um, protests, which is when, when this really kind of uh, gained steam. You know, when we talked, she said that going to school as a little girl in Paso Robles, I mean, she didn't know who she was. She's an African-American woman and, uh, and uh, you know, being a black girl growing up in this mostly white town at that time, she didn't get a lot of positive reinforcement about her identity and her heritage and it made her feel so alone. That coupled with the fact that she experienced um, incidents where white students used the N-word to refer to her in class, you know, made her feel as if, it was better to loathe herself than love herself. And she, in a way, wished that she was white so she wouldn't have to deal with this kind of thing. So for those who are listening, this is American history as, as, it, goes, as it plays out for Black people. This, this whole conversation about critical race theory is confusing to me because I don't know how to think about American history other than in the context of being a Black person with the very specific um, the, the peculiar history um, that, that, that we carry inside of us. Uh, I don't know how to talk about inequity without thinking about how they play out in the here and now and how this, this legacy carries on and on and on. When Juanetta and I talked, it was so sad to hear her angst as she described her own daughter who is currently in the public school system there being referred to as the N-word and having people call her Biden lover and things like that, simply because she's black. And I don't think they know what her politics are. I mean, she's, you know, a young girl, but that's where we are. This is our history. This is not something that is optional for us. And if it is not optional for us, uh, those on the receiving end of the inequity, the exclusion, then it cannot be optional for those who somehow find it uncomfortable or unsettling. And so, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to you because so many kids in California, uh, black kids, Latinos and Latinas, you know, um, Asian kids are, are having to wonder why America doesn't think that they, are the, that they are worthy. And that goes right to your heart. And you carry that with you in ways that are kind of hard to accept even for yourself throughout your life. And there's no other way for us to understand American history unless we think about that, about the, the, way, the way our history shapes individuals in places like this and, and around the state and country. Let's go to the phones again, and this time talk to Art in Sacramento. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me on. I've been on your show many times, and I'm really appreciative of having Alexis. Uh, um, and it just seems to me that a lot of the story that's coming out has to do with the Tucson experiment that happened back in 08, 09, 11. And I'm looking at research papers on the outcomes of the children, the young people that went through those school systems of ethnic studies, and they did so well. But as a, my personal story is I'm 11th in a family of 15 migrant farm workers from uh, the Central Valley. And we used to travel down to Pismo Beach in the late 70s and 80s to enjoy the beach. And it was amazing how different the world was just two hours away. And I remember thinking that there were history, history teachers or social science teachers at my high school who never told me about Cesar Chavez, who was doing his work 20 miles away in Delano. And I was growing up in that sense. And I feel like, you know, migrant farm worker kid, 
so many of my sibs, you know, did not aspire to higher education because it was drummed out of them. And I think, you know, in the same way, like now about like sidetrack, the opioid crisis, it didn't become a crisis until it was white people dying off. And, and to me, it's really sad that this is now taking the other directions. Like, well, white people, some many, many, not all white people, but some white people are afraid that we're going to somehow become racist towards them. Well, the country has a history of racism, but it's not towards white people. It's towards people of color. And so we need to address that by shoring up the identity, the social identities of young people who are going to be the tax base for our future. Well put, Art. Thank you for those comments. Roberto writes more and more with the current conversations about our country's history with race and racism. I am grateful for the privilege I've had of an ethnic studies education at San Francisco State University in the 1990s. It is so important to learn the history of our country that includes the painful truths of which there are many. Hiding from these histories, fearing them doesn't serve anyone. People who fear these stories being told are afraid to experience the necessary discomfort required to heal. And Fred writes, Paso Robles is a lovely place to visit, but I'm not surprised that there would be this sentiment. I had in-laws there for a number of years who were kind and accepting of me, a black man, to their family. There was always a conservative streak that ran through them even 20 years ago. I've since divorced and lost contact. In the city itself, enclaves with names like Heritage Ranch register as a code. My ex and I had police called on us by my in-laws' neighbors, drew looks while out at lunch or dinner, and I was asked for drugs by a local, assuming, since I was black, that I must be holding. Oy, oy, oy. <laughs> Tyrone. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm here shaking my head in silence. Um, you know, again, this is America. Okay. I mean, this is not, this is not, you know, one man's experience. And thank you for sharing that because I must be painful to disclose details of your life for the rest of us, but we need to hear it. Um, it's uncomfortable for me. And I hear these stories all the time, but that's the thing. If we are not able to explore these facets of American life, then we really don't know its history. And the idea that we can sort of reconcile and make peace with each other without, sort of, without going there, without grieving together over what we have done to each other and what the nation, just because of its design, has done to certain people. I mean, the idea that we can sort of move on is ridiculous. I mean, I, I'll, I mean, I'll be very opinionated about that just based on my lifetime of experience doing this work. It's not going to happen. We have to be able to hear voices like the, one, the ones we've just heard. Uh, and thank you to the callers for sharing that. This is really hard work to listen and to absorb, but that's where we are. That's our challenge. Tyrone Beeson, thank you so much. This has been such a moving conversation. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, I hope to be back on. The, the, the work continues. Check, check out his series, My Country, on the L.A. Times website, and also I think we'll have a link on our own website here uh, at KQED. You've been listening to Forum, and I'm Rachel Myro. Stay with us. We've got more coming up.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.